Hello there. Today, we're delighted to host Miss Alice Faye Duncan, a distinguished national board educator and acclaimed author. With NAACP Image Award nominations for works like Honey Baby Sugar Child and Just Like a Mama, she seamlessly blends educational insight with storytelling prowess. Her impactful narratives guide us through pivotal moments like the American Civil Rights Movement and her Juneteenth bestseller, Opal Lee and What It Means to Be Free, has sold 85,000 copies since January 2022. Her recent release, This Train is Bound for Glory, adds another chapter to her remarkable literary journey. Publications included the New York Times, Boston Globe, Black Enterprise, Ebony Magazine, and Parent Magazine recognize Miss Alice Faye Duncan's contributions. With a master's in library and information science from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, she dedicated she devoted 30 years to education in Memphis. Miss Alice Faye Duncan, a warm welcome to Fathers and Galaxy. Thank you, Keith and Kerwin, for the invitation. It is an honor to be here. Thank you so much. It's, this is an honor for us. You know, we are, we consider you a legend. Uh, so Thank we you. are so happy and so thrilled for you to find us and to be on our podcast. So thank you so much. Thank you once again. Thank you. I like to start from the beginning. I'd like to know if you could tell me about growing up, your childhood, where you grew up, talk about your family, and maybe share some of your favorite childhood memories. I would love to do that. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, where I presently live. I've I've only been away from Memphis to attend grad school, so it has been my native home, my permanent home. My mother and father were both um, in my house. We say they were uh, Negro school teachers because they started teaching before integration. And then I was I was born in like 1967. So I would say I'm one like first generation integration child because I, I did go to an integrated school. But so here's the thing with me. I am my mother and father. I was my mother and father's only child. And when I was growing up, I wanted like nothing else but to read independently because my mother, who was a school teacher at night when she would do story time with me, she would always fall asleep. And so I knew that when I got to fit first grade, I would learn how to read and therefore I would be independent of my mother and I could read on my own. But now we were, we, I was going now to a newly integrated school. And if you know about the whole uh, tradition of white flight, what oftentimes would happen is once integration was mandated, the white children would end up, their parents would, would remove them and put them in some kind of parochial mammy-made school. And so you were stuck there with, I mean, you not stuck there, but you would have uh, black kids in a school where only the staff was integrated. And so a lot of that happened in Memphis where I was. And so we had this elderly aging white teacher when I was in first grade and first week of school, first day of school, I'm thinking, Hey, this is first grade. This is where this learning is supposed to, I'm going to learn how to read. Now my cousins, I'm the only kid. All my big cousins had said, Hey, once you get to first grade, first grade is where you're going to learn how to read. And the teacher wasn't doing that. She was giving us like two, three hour recesses. And then we would come in and, and play games. And every day from day one, Every day, first grade, first day of school, I would go home, tell my mom, we ain't learning how to read. We ain't learning how to read. We ain't learning how to read. And my father, again, taught school. He got so tired of me complaining by the third day that he took me out of that school and he enrolled me in his school, which was also, mind you, in Memphis, newly integrated. Uh, but he put me in a black teacher's room whose reputation was that of being a very great teacher. First grade, I learned how to read. By the end of first grade, I was reading independently. I was writing poems and I was well on my way. I didn't know it at that time, but those little poems, they were well on their way to be the foundation of my writing career. When did the realization hit you that writing was more than just a passion, it was a calling? 
Were there any specific moments or influences that crystallized that for you? Oh, indeed, Keith. That is a very good question. So first grade, I was just reading independently and writing because I had the joy of reading, right? And the joy of writing. And I was the only child, so I spent a lot of time, just quiet moments to myself. But by the sixth grade, something had happened. By the sixth grade, my mother and my father, my father and my mother, they had separated. My dad had left the home. Uh, and I was distraught about that. And now my little poems that I was doing, they were more like, I would say, a place where I could, you know, explore my feelings about my mom and my dad's separation. Um, and they were a place where I could just like, you know, contemplate my new life circumstance. And I enjoyed writing these little poems very much. So in sixth grade, one day, the, uh, the teacher, she tells us that we're going to have a special guest in our class. And two poets are coming, she says. One poet is a woman named Phyllis Tickle. And the other poet is a man named Etheridge Knight. Now, Phyllis Tickle was a white Episcopalian lay minister. And Etheridge Knight was a black poet who had been discovered by the late, well, she was living then, by the uh, Pulitzer Prize winner, Gwendolyn Brooks. So when Phyllis Tickle brought Etheridge Knight to our class and he started talking about poetry and started talking about publishing books as a living and making his living as a poet. And uh, he started talking about Gwendolyn Brooks and sharing some of her poems and things. And he looked just like, he looked like all of my uncles. He looked like my father. He looked like my granddaddy. He looked like, you know, uh, the neighbors in my neighborhood. And he was saying how writing was his living. And that is at that moment in sixth grade when I realized, first of all, not all the writers, because up until that time, my perception was like, you know, all the writers that I'm reading in these books and things, they're all dead. So it was at that time that I realized, hey, not all writers are dead. And then it was also at that time that I realized that, hey, me, as a, as a, a Black girl, I could make a living with my words. I could like these little poems and things and stories that I'm putting in these little journals that my mom was buying me that I could actually make a living with my words. And so it is at that moment in sixth grade that I decided, you know what, I'm going to be a writer. So the stories that you wrote early on, uh, were they more about your personal background, about your upbringing? Were those the themes in your stories when you first started writing? Okay, so like, uh, so my mother and father, again, like I told you, they were school teachers, but also they were voracious readers, okay? And so with the exception of the bathroom, like every room in our house had a built bookshelf. My, my dad made sure that when we moved to our new neighborhood, like he wanted a bookshelf put in every single room. So literally in our new house. Four of our house, I mean, we have like, what, seven bookshelves in the living room, yeah. two in and, my room, a couple in my parents' room. Yes. And that's why you're exceptional. Right. It, it makes a difference. Books make the difference. I'm exceptional. Uh, and so that's what, that was my situation. And so when, when I learned how to read, what reading material did I have? My mother had you know, bought me the little golden books or whatever. But also once I had saturated all those books, I started going to those bookshelves. And what I would find, the books on my mom's and my dad's bookshelves, Keith, that were easy for me to read were Langston Hughes, the Maya Angelou poems. It was the poetry books. And so, Kerwin, when you ask about what was I writing, a lot of times I was emulating Paul Lawrence Dunbar. So like my poems were like in black vernacular. My stories were in black vernacular to my mother's chagrin. And then I was also writing poems about my feelings. And so I remember, you know, because when my mom and my dad separated, my mother became like, 
the major disciplinarian. She was the, the beginning and the end of everything. And her answer was mostly like, no, because that at the time was probably the most protective word for me. Like, you know, no, you can't have five donuts, you know, like, no, I'm not buying those Jordash and those Calvin Klein and those eyes eyes because I'm a single mother and I can't afford them. No, no, no. And so it was just like always no, no, no. And so I remember this one poem I wrote because my mother seemed to be just such a mean person, which was not the case. I know that now at 56, but I wrote this poem and it was called uh, Roses are Red, Violets are, are Blue, Joe Green is Mean, and So Are You. <laughs> Bruh. <laughs> Sure, that's 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 where it begins. <laughs> so you have a, a variety of topics that you've written over the years. And I just want to talk about two books. One, I, I held them up earlier. One is called Opal Lee and What It Means to Be Free. Mm-hmm. For those who have not read the book, can you tell us who Opal Lee is and what the book is about? Sure, sure I can. So Opal Lee is considered the grandmother of Juneteenth. Prior to 2021, Juneteenth was a national observance day in a lot of states and not a national holiday. And so with the murder of George Floyd, a lot of people turned their attention to Black joy, the celebration of Black life. And one of the things that sort of was happening simultaneously while people were outraged about George Floyd is that they uh, they recognized Grandmother Opal Lee, who was you know going across the nation trying to get signatures to make Juneteenth a national holiday. And so it is actually the murder of George Floyd, I think, that sort of exacerbated that um, that rise in people demanding that uh, Juneteenth be a holiday. And Opal Lee, it's a campaign that started like in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, the man who started it died, passed away, but Opal Lee was one of the folks on that early campaign who was still plodding along to make it a holiday. And so when George Floyd died, I think it just galvanized everything. It became like a zeitgeist moment, right? It was a moment whose time had come. And she spearheaded that and was able to communicate with the Democrats and Republicans to make it a a reality for us all. And Opal Lee uh, was 96 years old when President Biden signed the bill into law about making the uh, Juneteenth a national holiday. Right. So she has lived through segregation and Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. Um, so she can you know, talk from experience what she had to go through um, living in those times. There was a passage in the book that I wanted to talk about. I, I, I really loved it. Mm-hmm. And this was the time when she's telling a story. This is when she's sitting down. She's talking to young children. And she's telling the story about this angry mob who came in to her family and burned down their house. Um, and then she wrote, and yet the embers burn, that fire still lives in me. I learned a big lesson on Juneteenth Day. Freedom is a golden coin, struggle makes it shine. I thought that was a wonderful passage because what it tells me that, yes, freedom um, comes with cost. Um, it's not easy to attain, um, but the struggle continues. What does that passage say to you? Anything that you wanna add in regards to that, that line of passage? My father, before he died, my father would always say, you know, no cross, no crown. And oftentimes my great aunt will say, you know, uh, nothing worth having comes easy. And so I feel that way about liberation and about freedom and about preserving liberation and freedom. Because like, as you know, so many rights we, we gained voting rights 50 years ago, and then 50 years later, they've now been just gutted and taken away, which means that 
once you re receive freedom, you just can't sit on your laurels that you have to be vigilant and you have to be busy about preserving it. It also means that whereas Keith would say today he has the freedom to vote, but tomorrow he might not. You know what I mean? And so his generation then is responsible for making sure that the freedom returns, that the freedom is preserved. And so every, every generation has a responsibility. Nobody is free to just sit down and tap dance and boogie and have fun on the, on the shoulders of the folks, you know, who have marched, who have been killed. Uh, a lot of things, for example, a lot of things began to happen that were positive after George Floyd was murdered. But simultaneously, the Wheat and Tares were growing up together. Simultaneously, while people began to publish Black books, then also the book banners began to uh, double up on their campaigns to ban books. And so I'm 56 years old, Karen, you are however old you are, Keith is the one that's going to be now living longer than all of us because he is on the come up, right? And so I'm hoping that my book, when, when young children read my book, I'm hoping that while they're celebrating the freedoms that we have, I'm also hoping that they are being inspired to know that the responsibility of freedom sits squarely on their shoulders. Because guess what? I ain't going to be here. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And then I also want to talk about your second book. This is your latest book called This Train is Bound for Glory. Yes. Um, truly wonderful book. Absolutely Thank fantastic. Thank you. Uh, can you tell us about what this book is about? Yes. Okay, so This Train is Bound for Glory is a... A uh, traditional black gospel song that we every every black person from a charismatic gospel tradition has probably sung, right? If you Kojic Baptist, uh, AME, you know you've probably sung this song. Um, and so it's a a song about going to heaven. And while it is a gospel song, it was made very popular by a rock and rolling sister, Rosetta Tharp. Uh, before Sister Rosetta Tharp, I think there was like Louis Armstrong who made it popular. It was first recorded in 1922, 19, the 1920s. And so it's a song like a spiritual in that it has changed. The verses can change from person to person. The verses can change from generation to generation, but the theme stays the same which is all of us, no matter who you are, when we leave this world, we're going to be riding the glory train. And so I wrote it because I wanted children, children experience death. Pets die, grandparents die, sometimes parents die, friends die. Okay. The world is filled with change. You know, uh, time is filled with swift transition. But so I wanted children, when they're having these experiences, I wanted them to see death through a lens of joy, uh, through a, a lens of singing, dancing, hope, um, expectation of good things present and good things to come. And so that is why I wrote the book. Another thing, interesting, going back to Mean Joe Green, my mother, uh, when I wrote the book, my mother, who was 86, she was very much alive. Um, she, you know, retired teacher. I had then retired. I had spent my my days going over to her house every day. She was in my car. I was taking her somewhere, Walgreens, you know, uh, grocery store, somewhere, you know, where the old folks go. And um, and then I wrote the book, and my mom. I wrote the book. My mom was alive when I, the book was published, my mom now had passed yeah. and reading the book had a different kind of feeling for me. When I wrote the book, she was very much alive, very much my roadie. We were in the car singing together, talking, having fun. But when the book is comes as birth into the world, my mother is now on the glory train. And so now when I read that book, 
I read it with such a sense of joy and and hope because it's like, oh, one of my most favorite people is on that train. My father is also on that train. One of my most favorite people, Etheridge Knight is now on that train. Paul Lawrence Dunbar is on that train. Gwendolyn Brooks is on that train. And if I live right, I might be on that train one day. Yeah, it's 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 beautiful. It's it's beautifully written, and it's all the art. The artwork is just stunning. Um, and then on this train, you're just talking about who is on the train. You represent uh, everybody. Uh, yes, it's, exactly. It's, and it's, it's it's like ableism. It's yes. like men, women, children, Asians, no. Arabs, Indians, black, white, uh, young, middle, old. Uh, big people, little people, uh, like you know, people from the circus, football players, firemen, teachers, just opera singers, everybody and their mama is on that train from every nationality, you know, and spectrum of society. Because what does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us that God is no respecter of what? God is no respecter of persons. Your your books are, are geared for children. They're children's books, but some of your 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 themes and your stories are very heavy um, and very serious, even for some adults to read. Um, yes. So, how do you balance writing for uh, children when you're discussing such topics as this, as death and slavery? You know, you you don't want to isolate the people who are reading your books. So, how do you make sure that yes, some of these subjects are very difficult and very challenging to listen to or to read, but it's something that you need to hear, need to read, need to know. Okay. So like, have you ever noticed that some love songs are very sad, but you sure do love singing them. And so, so what, what I do is I just try to write when I'm writing about something heavy, I try to write it in a lyrical way. I try to write a poem. I, I wrote a book that talked about lynching, evicted and the struggle for the right to vote. And there's a poem in there talking about lynching. So what I did was I knew that was heavy, right? So I wrote it in a poem. Um, when I'm writing Memphis Martin and Mountaintop, I think, yes, Memphis Martin Mountaintop, it's talking about the assassination of Dr. King. That can be very sad, right? You know, America was burning, children, uh, teenagers were breaking glass, setting things on fire because they were so distraught and frustrated, right? So what I did was I thought, oh, I will have the main character opposed to the little girl going in the street, breaking glass, throwing stuff. I'll have her to write a poem about that experience. And that way, like that sad love song, it makes it um, easy to receive and it makes you want to sit there in that somberness and think about it, you know? In your exploration of historical events, such as the Memphis sanitation strike and the tent city movement, interviews seem to play a pivotal role. Could you elaborate on why engaging with firsthand accounts through interviews and oral histories is crucial for bringing these moments to life in your books? My God, like, why are you not working for NBC, like, right now? Like, why not? Call the future be older. Call the future forward, He is the future. I wish I could. You're ready. You're ready, okay? Like, just skip skip school and just go on and get your job. Um, (laughs) So, um... Okay, so that's a very good question again, Kerwin. That's a very, no, well, yeah, Keith. That's yes. a very good question. Um, the reason why I do that is because I'm writing about the past. And most of the people in the past, like King is dead. A lot of those sanit- uh, sanitation workers are dead and evicted. A lot of those sharecroppers are dead. So what I need to do is, in order for me to um, catch the spirit and to bring something organic to the book, 
I need to speak with someone directly connected to that moment. So for the sanitation strike book, I spoke to a school teacher who was a, a kid during the sanitation strike and her mom and dad would drag her to the meetings, drag her to the, the picket line, drag her to the rallies. Uh, for evicted, I found a guy who was a kid and his mom, they were the, the farmers that, that organized the movement. In fact, he's like one of my very good friends right now. His name is Mr. James. I, I talk to him often um, because he all he has so much knowledge about like the 60s and that time in our history, um, particularly the rural, black rural area when folks were doing these grassroots movement things. Uh, what, what's another? Opal Lee. Like to to me for me to communicate with Opali and talk about her life story, opposed to just looking up books about her life story, it brought some of her, it brought some of her life to the book. It made the book live. It was organic. It was living. It was alive. It was connected to something breathing. You understand what I'm saying? And so that's what I try to do. Like. If I'm going to talk about anything and it's going to be a nonfiction book, I've got to find someone. I've got to find someone connected with the topic, no matter how and how far in the past that topic was, because it just brings life. Like it brings life to the experience for me. Yeah, we. Again, we talked about how you are a multi-genre writer. You write about multiple topics, multiple storylines. Why is it important for you to be uh, a writer who writes about uh, many topics, many different topics? Because I have many interests. And so I'm a school, I mean, I'm a school teacher. I, like, I'm a school librarian, been there for 30, I've been a school, te school teacher school librarian for 30 years. And so like, I know the curriculum, right? I, I know I know what children are, are reading in elementary school. I know what they're reading in high school. I know what the curriculum requires. And so I also know where there are gaps in the curriculum. And as a black person who is a lover of black history, I also know where there are gaps in the curriculum. And so basically what I write about, I write about the things that I feel children need more awareness of, more knowledge about um, my new book. I think there it is. You see it, uh, Traveling Shoes, which is about a TSU Tiger Bell, Willie B. White, five-time Olympian. Willie B. White was right there in Melbourne, Australia with uh, Wilma Rudolph when Wilma Rudolph won her first uh, Olympic medal in 1956. Everybody knows Wilma Rudolph. Don't nobody know Willie uh, Willie White, who came from the Delta, went to more Olympics than than Wilma, lived much longer than Wilma, traveled 150 countries, was a part of 39 U.S. international track teams, uh, broke seven records for tw for two for two decades. She held the 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 best. Uh, the best long jump, woman's long jump numbers in the nation. Okay, nobody, she's like lived like 100 miles away from me in Greenwood. Nobody knows her, but I'm like, look, I mean, we singing about Wilma. Wilma is great, but, but we need to know about Willie because Willie serves as a paragon of hope for all the little black children and white children who are living right now in the Delta a rural area where they are thinking they are feeling hopeless and having no models to show them the way. Or for all the kids in the urban center who are feeling hopeless, having no such models to show them away. So I'm like, hey, children need to know about Willie. So I sat down, I wrote about it. And what did I do? I interviewed Ralph Boston. I interviewed uh, Pat Conley, one of her her track teammates. I interviewed who else? Um, uh, one of her swim, uh, uh, an Olympic swim teammate who they met in Rome. I, I Look, there's some Tiger Bells here in my city. I live in Memphis. A lot of folks went to TSU. I interviewed a, a variety of Tiger Bells here in my city 
who knew Willie, went to school with her, and and they were able to bring that organic substance to the story for me. One of the things that we discuss when we're putting our podcast together is we also not only we you know we're a lover of Star Wars and Marvel and you know superhero films, but we also push literacy. Reading is so very important to us. And, uh, you know, as Keith said, you know, we have books here, uh, seven different bookshelves, you know, with hundreds of books. Just in the living room. In our home, right? (laughs) Just right. And we wanted to uh, promote that on our podcast. So what we have from time to time is a a segment called Storytime with Maceo, where we would sit down and read to Maceo because he loves to be read. He loves to read and he loves to be read too. What advice would you give to other families who may have children, especially children who are on the spectrum and to encourage them, um, even though if your your child may not be a good reader, but enforce to them, um, explain to them how important it is to continue to read to your children, regardless of what reading level they're on. There, there are two things I would recommend. I mean, to make it a good sermon, I need three things. But right now, I just have two. Um, and so the first thing is what my mother would do uh, with me. Like from the time I was like a baby until I was like maybe in the fifth grade, she always woke me up with a Paul Lawrence poem, same poem every morning. And it would go, uh, Lias, Lias, bless the Lord. Don't you know the day is broad? If you don't get up, you scamp, there'll be trouble in this camp. And, and so poetry was a part of my life. My mother, good, better, best, never let it rest until my good is better and my better is best. Right. I mean, my mother had like a variety of poems that she would just say to me and they became mantras. They became affirmations for me. I would recommend all black families need to like memorize poems together, memorize scripture together. Um, Because what will happen is when you get in a situation and you need a, a word, those words from your mom, your dad, that the family has shared together, those words will come and they will be a balm of blessing to you just at your point of need, right? So I recommend that families start memorizing poems together. And I also recommend that if you are reading aloud to children, young children, always find something like this train is bound for glory, uh, find a book like Memphis Martin and Mountaintop where there's poetry or the book is set up like a call and response so that there is interaction and there is engagement. Children like interaction. They like engagement. They like onomatopoeia. They like saying those sound words. Ricky Ticky Timbo, No Saw Rimbo, Char Barbucci, Pip Parapimbo. You know, like that was my favorite, one of my favorite books when I was a children's librarian to read. Uh, chicka Chicka Boom Boom, Will It Be Enough Room, A to B and B to C, I'll meet you at the top of the coconut tree. I mean, like all of those are my jams. Um, Heckity Peg, all of those things where it's like, it lends itself to being recited. It lends itself to being spoken. If I can have a child to fall in love with the spoken word, they're going to fall in love with, I feel they'll fall in love with reading. You know, once they see books have joy, books embody joy, you know, books are life affirming. I just, so that's, that's my two things. Memorize poetry together and read interactive call and response like books together because they're fun. They connect. They knit us together in love. And I'll come up with my third one the next time I come. Yes, that, that's wonderful. All the future forward next time. All right. Next time. There will be a next time. Absolutely. Could you share with us a little bit more about ASOP Writers and your pro- that's your program for the new writers? Where does the name come from? Does it have anything to do with like ASOP's fables? And how does it support those diving into writing? All right. So um, here is my here is my little turtle, and I heard a saying. It says uh, the the quickest way to get anywhere is slowly. And so Aesop's fable 
it, it came about, you know, there's this thing that they say Aesop was a black man and he made all these fables and the fables are what the fables are life lessons right you know the tortoise and the hare and so that's really the metaphor like you know writing in terms of our pursuit of writing wanting to be a writer the quickest way to get there is slowly take your time study and so i created aesop's writers as a celebration of Dr. King's birthday. So on Dr. King, usually on the Monday, whatever the Monday is, that is doc, considered Dr. King's birthday. Like this year, it actually falls on the 15th, his, actually, his actual birthday, which is Monday. Then I give a one hour workshop and people can, uh, they can sign up for it at Aesop Writers, um, at A-E-S-O-P-S-W- no, is that right? A E S O P S W R I T E R S dot com. Is that right? I think so. All right. Yes. Sounds right <laughs> yeah. So it's close enough. But if you put it in there, it'll it'll come up. And um, or you can go to my website, alicefayduncan.com, and there's a link there. Sign up there. There's a free hour workshop um for the event that's gonna be noon, noon. Eastern time, I think. Yeah, noon Eastern time on Monday, January 15th. And I've been doing it now for like three years. I've been doing it since COVID. So I've been doing it for like three years now. For young aspiring writers like me, what advice do you have for children who are eager to embark on their own creative journeys and want to tackle some important topics through writing? I would say two things. Read poetry every day. Um, that can be poems by your favorite poet or read an anthology where you have a variety of poets to discover who your favorite poet is. Go and scour your parents' bookshelves. I'm sure they have a variety of poets there. But I would say read poetry every day. Find you a poet that you really do love. Uh, growing up, I love Paul Lentz Dunbar. I love Maya Angelou. I love Nick Giovanni. In fact, write this down. There is a album that I used to listen to because I'm a 70s kid now. Okay. Oh, that's a <laughs> key. You are my legacy. I'm gonna put you on as my beneficiary on my on my thing, on my paper. All right. So um, um, but look up this this book. I mean, this record. it's called Truth. It's called Truth is on the Way. It's Nikki Giovanni reading her poems to James Cleveland. Um, that that I used to sit down in the den of my parents' house, like in the 75, 76, something like that. It was in the 70s. And I would just play that. I would just, you know, we had the stereo. I would just play that album over and over and over and over again. Um, listening to that gospel music and then hearing the poems, it was something so moving about that. It was something, and it was so black. The poems were so black. The music was so black. And it just made me feel good about being black. And so, yeah, I would recommend that. Uh, read poetry every day. But the Bible, too. Like, the Bible, the Bible is nothing but a book of poems. And for me, whether you're religious or not, I think the Bible, any holy text is living and alive. And it's just something about the, the poems and the principles of wisdom that's there that sort of like insinuates itself into your own creativity. Um, and so I, don't overlook the Bible. Don't poo-poo on the Bible. I think it's, it's really, you know, People don't pay a much, and I don't mean for religious, I mean, but really for its literary uh, strength and its literary efficacy. The Bible is real, like real powerful to me. Yes, as you were talking, time is passing. Yes, yes. I, passing look, up, I, look, I, books I, on her collection. I, so. Look, look, yeah. uh, Kerwin and Tanya, I don't know where y'all got key from, but I think that's my child. I think y'all took <laughs> my child. Y'all yeah. took my child. <laughs> so we have poems by Maya Angelou. That was my jam. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And then we have Haiku, Richard Wright, Haiku. Oh, nobody even knows that Richard Wright wrote Haiku, but you and me, we the only ones that even realize he wrote Haiku. How about that? Okay, this is wonderful. And then we have Rita Dove, Selected Poems. Rita Dove? Yeah, Rita Dove is deep. Now, she's heavy. So, like, like Keith, if you're able to, like, get through the Rita Dove, honey, I got to give you some dap. She's deep, honey. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah, we touched a little bit about the artists. You know, we talked about how beautiful your artwork is in your books. Uh, so I want to just give a shout out to these artists that we have, uh, the books that I'm holding. The Train is Bound for Glory is uh, illustrated Paul by Kellum. Paul Kellum. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the Opal Lee book is illustrated Ketura by Bobo. Bobo. Yeah. So do you have any decision making in regards to who's going to illustrate your book? Not necessarily. Like most times the editor has in mind or the art director has in mind who would be most fitting for the book. But sometimes an editor might say, who do you think or who do you want, right? And I'll I'll make a recommendation. Um, Paul Kellum, that came from my editor. It was perfect. He and I are doing another book together on uh, based on a, a Negro spiritual called I Gotta Sing. That's going to come. Look at that. What's that? This is Good Woman by now, Lucille Clifton. Lucille Clifton. Oh, now Lucio Clifton is my jam. And who else? And then we have the collective poems of Audrey Lord. Audrey Lord, Audrey Lord. She's got a lot of good quotes. So look, dude, dude, you're gonna be, you're gonna be, oh my God. Wow. Yes. You know something about success? Yes. It's hard to achieve, you know. As the great Thomas Edison once said, opportunity is passed by by most people because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. Wow. You know, okay. it takes a lot of hard work to write these books, come up with these ideas, you know, all of this. It's, it's really a great honor that you're here right now and you decided to take all that time off your busy schedule to come talk to us. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is, yeah, again, you know, that's why we put this podcast together to talk to people like you who have made an impact and, you know, not just African American stories, but American stories. You know, this is, All these stories. are books. Yes, these are books that need to be read by everyone. Um, and I know you're in the middle of talking about your artist. I just wanted you to finish up talking about Paul Kellum. Oh, yeah. Uh, so Paul Kellum was given to me by my editor. Um, our Gregory Christie for Memphis Martin the Mountaintop was given to me by my editor. But both of those partnerships have been really beautiful because the work is just so beautiful. Uh, Paul and I, we're doing another book called I Gotta Sing, which is based on a Negro spiritual. And that's going to be released in July of 2020, 2024 of next year. And so I'm excited about that. And so just the illustrators that I've worked with have just really been beautiful. And it's been really fortuitous for me to have them. Can we have an advanced copy? (laughs) Uh, Yes, sure. (laughs) Sure. Look, uh, what you got to do is, because it it will leave my mind, right? So... If you remember, just remember when we get to May, when we get to May, give me a call. They should have given me my copies and I can send it to you. We will put it on our calendar. Now, do you have some writing? Uh, Keith, do you have some writing? Yes. Okay. What kind of writing are you doing? Um, Basically creative writing. I, I, I sometimes... Like, I take existing worlds and I write my own stories in them. Oh, okay. Now, do they call that fan fiction or something? Um, I guess you could say that, but I make up my own characters. So, like, I, um, I've i been working on this... This, this, okay. this Minecraft series that I'm, that I'm writing. Mm-hmm. And I'm, like, on the, on the fourth book. Okay. All so, right. And Minecraft is... Yeah. yeah. And tell Miss Duncan what Minecraft is. 
it's it's a sandbox game. It's full okay, of blocks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's very simplistic, but it's so much fun. So okay. I'm writing my my own my own books. Nice. Well, well, that that's wonderful. So so uh, let me see. I would challenge. What can I challenge? Who is your favorite? Who are some of your favorite writers besides the Marvel people? Who are some of your favorite mm-hmm. black writers? Good question. I got to put Maya Angelou up there. She has great poetry. Langston Hughes as well. Those are some great poetry. Um, Derek Barnes. I think he's a very great author. I really like his work, like Ode to the Fresh Cut. So. Oh, yeah. That's a beautiful poem, isn't it? It's so beautiful. It's a beautiful poem. Um, I'm trying to see, like, um, I know what I'm going to challenge you to do. Write this down. A villanelle. I don't know how to spell it. It's uh, V-I-L-L-A-N-E-L-L-E. Okay, so write this down. Do not go gently into that good night. Rage, rage, rage. Who is that? Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I I think y'all can edit these. Yes, I remember that poem. Yeah. Do not go gentle into that dark good night, I believe. Do yeah. not, mm-hmm. do not go. Yeah, do not go gentle into that good night. It's by Dylan Thomas, okay? So this is what happened when my mother died. When my mother died, I wanted to write a poem that was a tribute to her. And I, when I was like, okay, I had a coworker one time challenge me to write a villanelle. That's the type of poem that it is. Do not go gentle into that good night, Dylan Thomas, D-Y-L-A-N Thomas. It is a villanelle. And so when my mother died, I wanted to do a poem on her. Um, I wanted to do a poem on her obituary, right? And so I was like, well, what am I going to do? And I read Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. I remembered it from college. And I said, you know what? I'm going to challenge myself to write a villanelle. And I did it. It took some time. It took some time, but I did it. And it made, I made it a part of my uh, mother's uh, obituary. And so one of my coworkers, he used to, he was a poet or whatever. He would challenge me to, um, hold on, let me get this book. Hold on. Sure, sure. Wow. This is an education. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so this is the book. Write this book down. It's called The Making of a Poem. The Making of a Poem. poem. Mm -hmm. And so what he recommended, he said when he was in college, his his professors had them to read this book and challenge them to write a variety of of the poems in here. Now, mind you, these a lot of these are like European forms. Like, you know, they're European forms. Who's the author of that book? Uh, it is a, a Norton anthology of poetic po- form, a Norton anthology of poetic forms, forms, F-O-R-M-S, and it's Mark Strand, S-T-R-A-N-D, and Evan Boland, E-A-V-A-N, Boland, B-O-L-A-N-D. Got it. Okay. I All think right, Tanya so, is looking in her, her her treasury of books. She may have that one. She might already have it, right? Yeah, and yeah. so but but what he was saying was he was like, Alice, my professor would, would challenge us to write these very difficult forms. The villanelle is not difficult, it but it still requires some thought process. So for Christmas, I challenge you to write a villanelle. For your parents, because guess what? Writing a villanelle, writing a poem is the cheapest Christmas gift you could give anyone. Wow. And you don't have to pay for it. That is It just requires time. Wow. That's beautiful. Well. Well, This has been such an education. This has been fun. We we knew it would be. And that's the reason why we wanted to. I got homework. Yeah. yeah, You have homework and it's good homework. (laughs) Lucrative homework. Yes, it is. It is. It's just you get your creative juices flowing. You know, you never know where this is going to lead you. I know. And so and hey, and here's the thing. When Keith makes it big, he's going to remember that very impactful talk that that old lady Miss Alice had with him. And he's going to send me. 
I don't know. What you gonna send me? <laughs> a $25 gift card? Oh, <laughs> oh he gonna send what me a handbook of poetic forms. Yes, okay. So this is the teachers <laughs> and writers handbook of poetic forms. Right. Oh well. Oh yeah. well. Well, I was hoping you would like do a Cadillac car or something, Keith, but that's okay. Well, you never know. Uh, you never, you never know. know. But yeah. anyways, it has been wonderful speaking with you all. Is is our job here done or do is yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, we usually end by asking our guests, you know, where can people find you? You know, what do you have coming up and where can they find you? Okay. Well, people can find me at www.alicefayduncan.com. That's Faye with an E. And I encourage everyone to get a copy of this train is bound for glory, uh, a celebration of heaven. And I encourage everyone. Yes, I love that book. And I encourage everyone in July to look for I Gotta Sing to meet Big Baby Jenkins, uh, Uncle Uncle Ed, and Big Nana. Yeah. This is incredible. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Thank you, Keith. Yeah. Thank you, Kerwin. Thank you, Doctor. Y'all have a great Thank evening. Thank you, Maceo. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Maceo. Keith, where can people find us? All right. You can find us wherever you get your podcast. Our socials are Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fonson Galaxy. Website, FonsonGalaxy.com. Please donate to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Galaxy. To get in cold, we have merch at FathersonGalaxy.MySpreadShop.com. And yeah, that's it. So please check those out. Alice Faye Duncan, thank you once again. Thank you. You are a treasure. You are very, a very talented writer. Um, so this is truly an honor and a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you. Hey, Keith, and if you ever get tired of your parents, you always got a place here with me. Oh, good. I'll see you later. Oh, <laughs> I that buy a flight to Memphis. That works all the right, other way I'll around, too. If we get tired of Keith, we could send you. <laughs> <laughs> we could send him over welcome. to you. You're welcome. You're <laughs> welcome. Bye-bye. <laughs> this is going to ship me in a package.